welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. Today, I have a very prominent and special guest for you. Those of you who are into meditation and Buddhism will most likely recognize the name of Roshi Joan Halifax. She is one of the most well-known Zen Buddhists and indeed Buddhist teachers generally in the United States. And she's a really remarkable woman who has a diverse background and set of life experiences. And I'd like to sort of just cut to the chase today and, and get to her background. I will just preface it by saying that Roshi Joan is a very busy woman. And so, you know, we did not have the time for the usual length of a Hacking the Self podcast episodes, which normally goes 60 to 90 minutes. I think my conversation with Rosie Joan is more like in the 30 to 40 minute range, but she had a lot of wisdom to share in that short period of time. And we spent most of it unpacking her new book. So I'll let, uh, I'll let that conversation speak for itself. But for those of you who don't know her, let me provide a little background on Roshi Joan Halifax. So Roshi Joan Halifax, PhD, is a Buddhist teacher, Zen priest, anthropologist, and pioneer in the field of end-of-life care. She is founder, abbot, and head teacher of Upaya Zen Institute in Santa Fe, New Mexico. She received her PhD in medical anthropology in 1973 and has lectured on the subject of death and dying at many academic institutions and medical centers around the world. She received a National Science Foundation Fellowship in Visual Anthropology, was an Honorary Research Fellow in Medical Ethnobotany at Harvard University, and was a Distinguished Visiting Scholar at the Library of Congress. From 1972 to 75, she worked with psychiatrist Stanislav Grof at the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center with dying cancer patients. For those of you who have interest in the area of psychedelics, you will undoubtedly recognize that name of Stan Groff, or if not, he is someone who you most definitely should look up. He did pioneering work with LSD, and Rosie Joan was married to Stan Groff and worked with him for a period of time, including with the application of psychedelics to end-of-life care, which really sparked her interest in this field. So... That is work that she has continued to do with dying people and their families and to teach healthcare professionals and family caregivers the psychosocial, ethical, and spiritual aspects of care of the dying. She is the director of the Project on Being with Dying and founder of the Upaya Prison Projects that develops programs on meditation for prisoners. She is also the founder of the Nomads Clinic, which brings medical supplies to remote regions of the Himalayas and Nepal. She studied for a decade with Zen teacher Chuang Shan and was a teacher in the Kwan Um Zen School. She received the lamp transmission from Thich Nhat Hanh and was given Inca by Roshi Bernie Glassman. So she's the author of a number of books, including The Human Encounter with Death, which she co-wrote with Stanislav Groth, The Fruitful Darkness, A Journey Through Buddhist Practice, A Buddhist Life in America, Being with Dying, Cultivating Compassion and Wisdom in the Presence of Death, and her latest book, which we talk about in this conversation, 
standing at the edge, finding freedom where fear and courage meet. So with that said, I'm giving you my conversation with Roshi Joan Halifax, which we recorded on July 6th, which according to Roshi Joan happens to be the birthday of the Dalai Lama, a serendipitous timing. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. And if you do, you can find out more about Roshi Joan at upaya.org. Thank you so much. Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hacking the self. Let me just start off the conversation by thanking you so much, Roshi Joan, for, for joining us. I'm extremely excited to have you on the podcast. And let me just start with that, uh, that bow of gratitude to you. Thank you so much. It's an honor. The honor is all mine. You know, I've wanted to have you on the podcast for some time, and this turns out to be particularly timely because you've written this new book, Standing at the Edge, Finding Freedom Where Fear and Courage Meet. And so I thought that we could spend the hour uh, or the brief amount of time we have together talking about that. So I'm wondering for the audience who might not be familiar with it, you know, could you briefly summarize what sort of is the, the basic premise behind this latest work of yours? Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Um, This is a book that explores what I have called edge states. These are states of qualities of mind. They are virtues that are really important for the psychosocial health of our societies. On the one hand, their strengths are what humanize us. But on the other hand, each of these virtues that I explore has a fraught side, a downside, a shadow side. So I look at altruism and its shadow side of pathological altruism. I explore empathy, which is this capacity to be in resonance with another physically, uh, emotionally, or cognitively. And the downside of empathy is when we become empathically distressed, when we experience empathic overload. That is something that, you know, many people are experiencing these days. You know, I also do a deep dive into integrity, and I explore issues related to moral suffering, which is the shadow side of integrity, which include things like moral distress and moral injury, moral outrage and moral apathy. And I think a lot of people uh, these days are really in that process of looking at what values and principles guide them. And when those values and principles are violated, what is our response? And sometimes our response is one that causes harm to ourselves or to others. And then I look, Adrian, at respect, which is holding others in regard or principles in regard or even, you know, self-respect and its shadow side of disrespect. And then finally, I explore the issue of burnout in relation to engagement and burnout arising because we've uh, not set good boundaries for ourselves, or we're working in a toxic workplace or toxic situation, or we've really lost meaning in our work and service to others. 
And I say that, you know, since all of us undoubtedly um, go off the rails in one way or another, the thing that I've discovered as a result of practice is the absolute value of the difficulties that we encounter so that we can learn from those difficulties. We can actually strengthen from those difficulties and that the most powerful way for us to work in this regard is using compassion as a means of transforming these difficulties with particular edge states back into the healthy side. So that's it in a nutshell. Well, thank you. That's a great overview. And I, and I do want to spend some time unpacking those in more depth. And I know in our limited time, that'll be tough. Perhaps we can pick a few and, and do it in more detail. But before we get there, you know, I really wanted to provide a little context for folks with this latest work of yours, because as I was reading the book, you know, I definitely got the impression, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong here, but you know, that this really in many ways was kind of the culmination of your life's work. You know, it's, it's the result of experience working in a lot of different fields with a lot of different communities or cultures. And so I'm curious if you could sort of paint the broad brushstrokes in terms of the, uh, the patterns and the sort of twists and turns in your journey that led you to this point. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, Adrian, um, when I was a child, I had a great deal of difficulties around physical illness. And I think that that experience both humbled me, but also gave me a certain perspective. And that, you know, as in my 20s, I um, was part of the civil rights and the anti-war movement, very politically uh, dedicated and involved. And fortunately, in the mid-60s, I had the the sort of moment of encountering a very remarkable person, a Buddhist teacher who was uh, came to the United States in order to literally protest the war that we're carrying on in Vietnam. He was, his name was Thich Nhat Hanh. And it was, uh, you know, the inspiration that I got from him of bringing together social action and meditation that deeply influenced my life. You know, I wasn't to become his teacher for, his student rather, for another 20 years. But in the meantime, that spark had been ignited in me. As a result of that, it just made sense, you know, using meditation as a kind of technique for transforming one's mental challenges and also um, bringing that quality of mindfulness and precise but loving way of seeing the world in the relation to social action. So, yeah, I feel very fortunate to you know, have lived at a time where I could take advantage of the resources of, that were available to us in that era in relation to the kind of political dedication, the work of Fannie Lou Hamer, of uh, Howard Zinn, people who are a little bit older than me, but who were very dedicated to social and political transformation. And then um, I was fortunate enough to work at the University of Miami School of Medicine. It was a really remarkable situation where I had the opportunity to work in a medical system that was quite conservative, but also innovative. And as a result of that, 
I had the opportunity to observe that the most marginalized people in that medical system, in fact, were dying people. So it really inspired me to work in the field of -of end-of-life care. Then I married Stan Groff. Uh, I worked with Stan on his project of LSD psychotherapy with people who were dying of cancer. And that was, you know, again, a tremendously eye-opening experience, which moved me to continue this work in the end-of-life care field since that time. That was in the early 70s. And also not just alongside dying people, but also alongside clinicians, people who were in the field of -of end-of-life care and in the field of medicine, whom I saw were deeply stressed by the kind of work they were doing in alleviating the suffering of their patients. Yeah, perhaps we can start with that point, because I I know you've done, you know, a lot of your work has been around, you know, hospice and and end-of-life care. And so perhaps you can talk about some of the edge, how you sort of have seen the edge states come to fruition there, what that's taught you sort of about your own practice. And and perhaps you can use that as a way to talk about the issues with engagement and burnout as well for people who do that kind of work. You know, we are all going to die, Adrian. And so for me, one of the most powerful things has been working with dying people, but also in that process, confronting the truth of my own, own mortality. And as a result of that, really feeling as though that working with dying people gave me an opportunity to learn so much about the existential questions, the really important questions that all of us should be exploring at any time in our life. So, um, you know, the work for me was inspiring. And I saw it, Adrian, really as sacred work, as holy work. Yeah, so, you know, I feel very lucky. I've been working with dying people in, in the end-of-life care field since the early 70s. And I just feel like, the, you know, the blessing for me has been um, being a student of people who were facing the end of their life. It's been, you know, a tremendously inspiring experience, sometimes not, not always pleasant by any means, sometimes very challenging, very difficult. But also my meditation practice gave me the tools to work with dying people that, you know, inspired me to meditate more, but also that I've come into a, you know, a sense of the deep value of doing this kind of work, coming alongside those who are dying as a chaplain, as a human being, as a caregiver, really as a student. I'm sure it's such a, I mean, nearly impossible experience to put into words. I'm, I'm just so fascinated by it. Do you, do you mind trying to elaborate a little bit on sort of what what has working with dying people taught you about how to live life more fully? Well, it's certainly helped me reorder my priorities. How so? I, it just, you know, when you see the truth of mortality, you want to do that which you want to be wholesome. You don't want to take you know, difficulties into the dying process. Yeah. So it just, I just feel like I'm a kind of lucky person. I, in the sense that I was given the opportunity to work in with people who are really, many of whom really struggled, but many of whom were incredibly courageous 
and I learn from them. So, you know, I, I feel like turning away from that opportunity is just a waste of one's life. And I feel the, the kind of blessing from working in this field, not only with dying people, but also with uh, caregivers, with doctors and, and nurses who have, you know, and chaplains and social workers who, you know, have dedicated their lives to caring for those who are really suffering. So, you know, it's like, I, I feel like I'm in an inspiration field, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, Where that's people, beautiful. You know, I just feel the, the, I feel the blessing of these relationships and the opportunities that have opened to me as a result of, well, anyway, as a result of, you know, I, it's nothing I planned, Adrian. It was more just the, the blessing of where I found myself and I didn't turn away from that moment. That's beautiful. I hear so much gratitude in your voice. It really comes through. Thank you. I, yeah, I feel very, very lucky in this way. Just, you know, I didn't say no. I pretty much said yes my whole life. You know, I've got to be thinking about so many others who do this kind of work, whether it's caregivers or teachers or things that people who are very service oriented, it can really, people go into it with such a big heart and great intentions. And it can also just take so much out of people to the point where, you know, they're not able to maintain that sense of, of gratitude. I've seen it happen to people, as I'm sure you have many, many times. I've seen it a bit in, in teaching. I've seen it in political activism. And so, you know, this really gets to that burnout issue or issues you've talked about with engagement. I'm wondering, what are some of the pitfalls, how people sort of get sucked in and lose that? And, and what can people do to really restore and maintain that sense of gratitude and, and perspective and equanimity in, in spite of this challenging work? Well, I think good friends are really important, Adrian. I feel like doing this kind of work in isolation is not necessarily the best thing. I think that we really need allies, we need mentors, we need partners, collaborators who work with us where, you know, there's a sharing of common values and a common view. I, you know, so relationship is really important. Also a practice, a practice where you're cultivating deeper understanding of your own subjective experience. And I think that the mental training that comes as a result of meditation is extraordinarily important. And whatever, you know, benefit that I've experienced from the work, I really have to lay most of it at the feet of having a practice, which has been pretty constant for over 50 years. So that's just, that's just been, you know, my good ally. And then I think another thing is the value of failure, that um, the struggles that we have as caregivers, the difficulties that we experience, the failures that we encounter, they're there as teachings. And, you know, when you get older, it's not as dramatic and horrendous. You know, it's not like this huge catastrophe. It's like, hey, I did the best I could and I wasn't this skillful. So there's, you know, this uh, deep opportunity for 
learning from one's own difficulties. And I feel like that's where my best lessons have been. And, you know, I've had some amazing teachers, not just dying people, but also uh, I just feel so grateful to Bernie Glassman Roshi and Thich Nhat Hanh and His Holiness the Dalai Lama and and so many wonderful people who have trusted me and shared the Dharma with me and been uh, a guide for me. So that's another thing that I just feel has been a a great blessing in my life, but that I've learned so much from uh, my teachers. It's been, it's just been a, yeah, very, yeah. So I think, you know, teachers, mentors, good friends, you know, Ananda asked about the holy life. He asked the Buddha and the Buddha said, the whole of the holy life is good friends. And that is just one of those wonderful sayings out of the Pali Canon that continues to inform me. That's wonderful. Thank you. So I was wondering if you could talk about the edge state of empathy as well as its shadow side, and if you could perhaps explain the distinction between empathy and compassion. Empathy is that experience of physical, uh, affective, and cognitive resonance with another. It's when you increase your subjectivity to include the experience of another. Compassion is that experience of being aware of the suffering of another with having the intention to actually alleviate their suffering and hopefully being able to engage in some action that transforms their suffering. So that's sort of the distinction between empathy and compassion. Yes. The shadow side of empathy is over-identification with the, or fusion with the person, for example, who's suffering or whose ideas that you're kind of fusing with. And going into an experience of an arousal level that um, causes you to suffer or for you, causes you to lose your moral base. And then you can experience what's called empathic over-arousal. And empathic over-arousal can lead to empathic distress. Can you give an example of, of how that might happen? So imagine sitting with a dying person who's suffering from intractable pain. Imagine that you're in resonance with that person. You've really included that person into your subjectivity. And as a result of that, um, you begin to actually experience that person's pain as your own. And then you go into a state of terrible distress, and then you feel like you want to avoid that person uh, because it's too painful for you to be in their presence. And then I'm wondering sort of what, what is the antidote to that? How does someone learn to work with empathy more effectively? As I said, I think one of the most important techniques is actually mind training or meditation where you're able to have the insight that there is a distinction between self and other. Right. I'm wondering, you know, of the set of practices, you know, what kind of practices are people employing there? I'm thinking of sort of the traditional Buddhist perspective. There's, there's mindfulness, there's metta. You know, you talked about the mind training and knowing the distinction between self. I mean, I don't know if you were quite getting there with the sort of realization about no self. That would obviously be a, a pretty advanced level insight. Um, I'm just wondering what sort of tools people could um, employ. One of the things that we train our people in is called grace. 
And that is this capacity to gather our attention, cultivate attentional balance, and to then recall your intention, which is really to be of service to the other person. And in that process of being service, uh, of service to others, being able to actually understand that our own capacity to attend to others, our ability to offer the best of what we have comes about because that we're grounded and we're also able to recall our intention not to be of harm and also not to harm ourselves. And then we can move into a state of considering really what will serve after being in resonance with an individual who's suffering, and then looking at, you know, what will really serve here, because we're grounded, our intention is aligned, we've been attuned to our own situation, we attuned to the other person's situation, and then we have a kind of base where the insight about what will really serve is engaged, so that the action that then follows is action that is skillful, hopefully. Right. I'm so glad that you, you mentioned the word grace, because I think grace can be uh, a word or an idea that some of us, particularly if we were coming from a, you know, a more theistic religious background that didn't really resonate with us, we might have sort of a conflicted or uneasy relationship to the idea of grace. You know, but I've come to understand it in sort of a different way, and I'm sure you have as well. For me, that's in part listen well, to Ron talk about it. Yeah, actually, Adrian, I'm using it in a very specific way. Well, this is a procedure and a process, a technique that I've developed to train caregivers. The G of grace stands for gathering your attention. The R of grace is recalling your intention. The A of grace is attuning to yourself and then attuning to another. The sea of grace is considering what will serve. The E of grace is engaging and ending. And what's really important is to, you know, actually I describe it in my book. I think you've read my book. So the grace process is described in the final section on compassion. Thank you for that clarification. That's good for the audience who might not have read it. I'm aware that's a technique. I was actually curious about the, not only the technique, which you were mentioning just there, but just sort of the role of, of grace generally in the process of dying and sort of how you, what your understanding of that is, uh, not only as a technique itself, but just sort of as it's used in the way, I, I'll reference the way Ram Dass talks about it, because I know that'll be a common point of reference to both of us, sort of how do you think about grace in a, in a Buddhist sense or a Zen Buddhist sense, and what does it, it mean to you? Well, I think you should say, because you're the one who brought it up, I use it very specifically as this process for cultivating compassion um, while interacting with others. But why don't you say something, Adrian, about how you think Ramdas refers to grace? Oh, boy. Well, I want to be very careful about putting words in Ramdas's mouth. I don't want to be presumed to speak on behalf of him. I guess sort of similar to something like faith in a Buddhist context, I've had to sort of rethink what that word means. And I guess I think of grace as an acceptance of a lack of control about one's ability to influence events in life. And maybe there's a certain 
acceptance around that and perhaps even a certain level of trust that there is something serendipitous or harmonious about the whole process and the way life unfolds. And that's how I kind of think about it. And I didn't mean to presume that you did as well. I just wanted to ask. No, you know, I mean, from the point of view of Christianity, it's, it's I'm talking about the kind of favor of God and the bestowal of blessing. So, you know, maybe we can talk about passion as a kind of blessing. Well, thank you for humoring that, even if it was a, a slight reinterpretation of, <laughs> of your idea. No, I just, you know, using the kind of classical interpretation. Right, right. Well, I'd love to ask you about altruism, because that's another one of those terms that sometimes debated and, and people want to, you know, you mentioned this at the beginning of your book, in fact, that, you know, this sort of, or actually, this may have even been, I think, in the preface to your book by the person who wrote that, that there was a popular idea around, you know, human behavior that economics and other psychologists and sociologists promoted that human beings were really you know, selfish and this sort of dar very strict Darwinian view and how that view is, has changed over time, not only sci in the sciences, but in beyond. And I think a lot of that has supported the notion of altruism, perhaps even within an evolutionary context. And I'm so I'm wondering, how do you define altruism? What's its role and what's its shadow side? Well, as I mentioned in my book, altruism um, has a shadow side that's called pathological altruism, which is when in our endeavors to alleviate the suffering of others, we actually harm ourselves. Altruism specifically refers to our unselfish concern for the well-being of others, usually followed by action. And so how, what would, what in your mind would distinguish altruism from altruistic action from other just simply well-intentioned or, or other actions? Well, I think the word intention is really critical, that one's intentions are completely unselfish, not self-centered, not looking for an outcome that is uh, self-referential. How would you respond to the criticism that there's no such thing as altruism, that on some level people, you know, all have self-interests and it's, you know, their mind is really just reframing some way of, of rationalizing what they want to do, or, or even if they're, you know, working with people in charity or something at the end of the day, it's not really altruistic because that's actually what they want to be doing. That's what gives them fulfillment. I'm just wondering. Well, there are two, two examples, I believe, of altruism that is completely unpremeditated, uncalculated, that is spontaneously arising. So I don't agree with that at all. <laughs> okay, no, please tell me why and what are those examples of the spontaneously arising? Well, Wesley Autry, again, reading my book, I cite him as a wonderful example of someone who jumped off the platform of the subway in New York to save a young man who was seizing. He didn't. He wasn't looking for approbation. He just saw someone in trouble, and he just spontaneously leapt into the way of an oncoming subway and saved the man's life. Now, did he do it to become famous? I don't think so. There's so many examples of this. Absolutely. You know, and that is a great point. And I'm wondering on sort of that more 
heroic note, you know, this is a time, as, as you touched on earlier in the conversation, where many people are feeling an overwhelming sense of, of darkness or, or gloom and pessimism. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering how, how people can sort of maintain a more balanced perspective as they go into the world and, and, and do their activism. Well, I think that it's very easy to become a, a slave or toy of gloom. And yes, there's many examples of people who just feel, you know, utility and have lapsed into apathy. I look at this time as a time of incredible opportunity where we have the chance to, you know, bring the work of a lifetime, the skills of a lifetime, our good heart in service to others. And in any case, we shouldn't be attached to outcomes. Say more about that idea, because I know what you're referencing when you talk about not being attached to the outcome. But I think for a lot of people, especially who might not have studied something like Buddhism or meditation or Hinduism, might not be so familiar with that idea. The notion, you know, trying to get something like a quid pro quo or driving toward an outcome can often produce so much suffering. Like, for example, you have an idea of what a good death is and you start manipulating the person who's dying instead of, you know, being there in support of their own journey. I think that one of the most powerful things is to just do your best, to offer whatever you can, and knowing that you can't control the outcome, so don't be attached to it. Yeah, so much suffering does come down to that. I mean, it's sort of like that, that desire to, similar to the idea of impermanence. I heard Joseph Goldstein talking about this recently, and he, he was basically saying it's the idea that we, we think we know it. It's sort of like, yeah, yeah. If you ask anyone, people are like, is life always changing? And they're saying, yes, yes, of course, life's always changing. But we don't really internalize that idea. And because we're always trying to keep things permanent or the same, it creates so much, so much suffering. And I think it's a, it's a similar idea with this one as well, with non-attachment. Even for those of us who try to practice this, it's, we know it's the right thing to do, but it's, it's incredibly hard to, uh, in the moment, <laughs> to not be attached. I know, but you know, that's where our lessons are. Right. You know, of course there's... A- attachment. But, you know, there's also letting go. Mm -hmm. Well, on that note, I'm very conscious of your time, Roshi Joan. And so I I should be letting you go as well, because I know you need to prepare for other interviews as well. But before I do so, I just want to thank you for your time. And I also want to give you another chance to just sort of say a little plug about your book and where folks can find it and where they can follow you in terms of your website and social media and anything else. Well, thank you. It's just been wonderful meeting you this way. And I just, I thank you for the work that you're doing and bringing, you know, the Dharma forward to your great community. And then, you know, I just encourage people to read my book. It's called Standing at the Edge, Finding Freedom Where Fear and Courage Meet. I think it's a very powerful exploration of these human capacities that are so important at this time, and also the profound value of compassion 
And I, you know, I can be accessed through the Paya Zen Center in Santa Fe, New Mexico, www.upaya.org. And I just encourage everyone in this time to whatever uh, extent possible for each of us to practice radical kindness and radical courage and use our life well. I second that endorsement. That's a, that's a wonderful call and a wonderful note on which to end. Roshi Joan, thank you so much. It was a true thank honor and pleasure you. to speak with you. It's just been wonderful to connect. Great joy. And today is actually the Dalai Lama's birthday. So I just send him much love as well. Absolutely. Much Great. love to his holiness. Yeah.